have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 12. And before we start, I want to make sure that we have the context. Any, con- any text without the context is a pretext, and we can't learn much from it unless we know what was going on in that day. And so I, I just was, as I was thinking about this passage, I wanted to remind you that the church of Jesus Christ was started through the most agonizing suffering that any person could ever experience. Jesus left heaven, number one, so that's a pretty big bummer, to to leave the best place ever created and to come down here and be with us. It would be like us leaving our homes and being shrunk down and put into an anthill and asked to survive. It would actually be worse than that because... Um, we are dirty and we don't even realize it. We're steeped in sin. And so for Jesus to leave a perfect place like heaven, to leave the presence of his Father and to come down to us was a very humbling experience for him. He came down to a place that was tainted with sin, filled with people that have rejected him and his Father. And so uh, the church of Jesus Christ was started with suffering and pain and anguish. But through that pain, through his death, brought ultimate eternal life. And so it would be no surprise to us that if it started with what we would in this world consider the worst thing that could happen, death, and that death brought life, you would understand that we as disciples of Jesus would be no better. We're going to experience trials and suffering and pain. But in the midst of that suffering and those trials and that pain, God desires to use those trials, those Uh, bummer times in our lives, those low valleys where it seems like it can't get any worse. He desires to use those things to bring blessing, not only to us in the midst of the trial, but to the, the world that does not know the Lord. He wants to show that our hope is not in the things that we have here. Our hope is in heaven. Our hope is in the person of Jesus. And so as we think about those facts, I want us to then get to the early church and see the things that have taken place so far. That while the apostles had been arrested, they'd been persecuted, uh, Stephen had been put to death for proclaiming to the nation of Israel that they had sinned and that they needed a savior. They couldn't follow the law. That the nation of Israel had always been unfaithful to their God, even though they thought that they were something because God chose them as a nation. He pointed out to them, look, you guys weren't faithful to the Lord. He had to over and over again reveal to you that you had failed and then show you that it wasn't based on your failure or success, but that he was going to bring you through and make himself known as a glorious and faithful father in God. So we see in the early church, the things that had happened so far were not only death and persecution, but a particular persecution happened in Jerusalem where Basically, all of the Jews that had become Christians were being persecuted to the point that they were spread out. The persecution made them uncomfortable, and so they left their homes. They left their families, and they went to other parts of the region of Judea and Samaria. And as they went there, uh, God used it for good, and we're going to talk about that. Another thing that was going on at this time, that there was famine in the land, and we don't know much about that because... We're not a society that necessarily depends on, although we have lots of people in our society that depend upon their farms doing well. The drought that we've had this year hasn't really been that bad of a drought, but farmers are 
I guarantee there's a lot of farmers that are praying, Lord, please send rain because otherwise we can't feed our cattle and therefore we can't sell our cattle and therefore we're going to be low on cash. We won't be able to sustain our families. And so uh, this society was an agrarian society. They were all dependent upon the crops producing. And, and those crops would provide for them through the rest of the year. And so the famine that's going on in the land is a bad thing. It's something that affected them directly. And what we're going to study today is that there's a king who's in charge, Herod Agrippa, and he's going to use his power and his influence to harass and even kill members of the church to discourage them and to gain favor with the people that he's the ruler over. Isn't it funny that the rulers of this world, in order to have their position, they have to gain our favor? So who does that make really in charge? The king or the people that give them their power, their authority? It, it gives us the power, which is ironic because we're the ones supposed to be in lead. We're the ones who are supposed to be being led. And so we're going to look at that today too. But what I wanted to point out is that in each one of these trials the persecution that spread the early Christians out from Jerusalem, it brought blessing to the rest of the world because though they were spread out, they were scattered, they were scattered out with the message of hope through Jesus Christ. So everywhere they went, they carried the gospel. They carried the truth that though they were sinners, God forgave them through the person of Jesus and they could have everlasting life. And no doubt, every person that they met would be other people that were also experiencing trials and hurt and pain through the situations that life brought. And so they were spreading the hope, even though they had been spread from their land because of a bad thing, God used it for a good thing. Again, the famine was an avenue where people were in need. They had a practical need. They didn't have food. Their crops weren't growing, so their animals were dying. And so in the midst of this, you have the church at Antioch, who in chapter 11 we studied two weeks ago, had just started and was beginning to flourish because Jewish people from the diaspora had been scattered. They landed up in this town of a half a million people in Antioch. They shared the love of Christ with the Jews that were there. And then there were Gentiles, like from Cyrene, which was kind of closer to Egypt than it was Israel. He was a Gentile. And he went to Cyprus, and people from Cyprus went to Antioch, and they shared their faith with the Gentiles, the people that were not from the nation of Israel. And so in all of that, they shared their faith in the way that God had framed them. And as they did, they raised up a church of Christians mixed with Jews and Gentiles. And that natural outcropping of those people believing in Jesus, experiencing the love of Christ, they took what God had given them, whether it was finances, whether it was skills, and they gathered it all together according to what they had, and they became a source of blessing to those who were in the middle of the famine. They had been blessed, and so they wanted to spread out the love. They took what they had been given by God, and they gave it back to the people that needed the love of God to be experiencing it in a practical way. They met the needs of those who were in the middle of a famine. And then today we're going to look at how this king who is going to reach out his hand and start persecuting believers in Christ, the Christians, God's going to use it to show himself glorious and to show that even though earthly kings are in power, that God's the one that has the ultimate authority. No king has, has his position. No political leader has their position unless God gives it to them. And when they use it wrongly, even though it seems like they just get to keep doing it, 
God's going to have the final word. He will judge what they do with the power that he gave them. And so we're going to look at that today in Acts chapter 12. So in verse 1, it says, About that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now before we go too far, I want to talk about that name Herod. Because we see Herod multiple times in the New Testament. Seems like Herod lives through the entire New Testament. He's a king forever, but he's not. You see, Herod was a king that was, uh, the name Herod was really more of a title. Like Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, it's his title. He is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Mashiach, which is the Hebrew word that just means Messiah, the Savior. And so Herod, we're going to see Agrippa, the first, is this man. Herod was his title. And so Herod, the first, is actually the son of Herod Antipas. Now Herod Antipas had killed John the Baptist. He was the one that was alive during the time of John the Baptist and actually put John the Baptist to death. And he had actually also mocked Jesus Christ. And then there was Herod Antipas, the one where uh, he was the son of Herod the Great. So you see this lineage kind of progressing. Herod Antipas was the one who killed John the Baptist, and then Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great, who was the man who had actually been used by God to kind of make the temple and refurbish it, build it up, make it more glorious than it had ever been, the temple that Jesus would uh, walk in. But Herod the Great also was known for ordering the, the death or the murder of all the children in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Remember the wise men had come into the nation. They were looking for Messiah. There was a prophecy that they were trusting in. They were looking for the birth of the Messiah. And as they got to Bethlehem looking for him, they asked the king, they said, where is this son that was born as the the one who's going to be king one day? And so Herod looked at him and goes, I don't know, but when you find him, let me know because I want to go and worship him too. Well, he didn't really want to go worship him. He saw that this this man that the Jews believed that was going to be raised up as the next king as a threat to his own kingdom. And so he was like, okay, so if there's a king coming, I want to go worship him too and put him to death. You know, he didn't really want to go worship him. He wanted to go and stop this son from getting any older to take over his throne. And so that was the thing that Herod the Great was known for, ordering the death of all the Hebrew children that were born at that time in order to make sure he eradicated the possibility of someone taking his throne. And so Herod Agrippa, Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, they were not known for being godly at all. So what I want to point out from that is that Herod Agrippa is just a lot, he's the the youngest and the newcomer of a line of ungodly leaders that were allowed by God to have leadership in the nation of Israel during the time that the Christian church is starting. You have to know that every time that God's on the move, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy. As a matter of fact, when God's on the move, many times, that's when the enemy is going to throw fiery darts and try to discourage the Christian going to try and put them in bondage, try to squeeze them, to just get them to stop sharing their faith, stop living their lives as a testimony to God's goodness. And when he does that, it's because he wants to silence the word of God from going forth. But what you need to know is every time that there's been major growth in the church, 
worldwide, it's been because of persecution. Because under persecution, things get taken away from us, like our freedoms. The things that we cling to, our hobbies, our habits, the things that are not of God. You know what happens during persecution? All of a sudden, we realize they don't matter as much. And when they're taken from us, all we have at that point is our relationship with the Lord. And when we, all we have is our relationship with the Lord, that's when the rubber meets the road. Because we realize how much we trusted Him or how little we've been really trusting in Him. So the Lord allows these trials. And because of that, the cool thing is, the church grows, it prospers. And we're going to see that today. So verse 2. Then this Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So this is not James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is James from the duo, James and John. And who are James and John? They're known as, Jesus gave them a nickname, the Sons of Thunder, Boanerges, or however you say that. He called them the Sons of Thunder because they went to Samaria one time, and he, they, you know, the, all kinds of stuff was going on. These Samaritans were coming and wanting to talk to him, and they said, you know, these people are being disobedient. You want us to call fire down on them like Elijah did? And Jesus said, you sons of thunder, you know, you're, you're missing the point. We didn't come here to, to judge them. We came here to share the truth with them. And so from that point on, he called them the sons of thunder. I always picture them as like a wrestling duo, like WWF or WWE, whatever they call it now. But anyway, this is James and John. And if you'll remember with me, James and John had actually, their mom had walked up to Jesus and said, hey, would you grant it so that my two sons could sit at your right hand and your left hand? Basically, so they could be your like your right-hand men. Do you think that they could sit on a throne next to you when you come into your kingdom? And uh, Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. Do you believe that you're ready to drink from the cup of suffering that I'm getting ready to partake of? And of course, they not knowing said, oh yeah, absolutely. Like, we're in. We can take this. And he said, indeed, you will drink of the cup of suffering. You will experience the wrath that I'm going to experience, but not at this time. And so we see the fulfillment of Jesus' words when James is, in fact, because of his testimony and his faithfulness to Christ, he is put to death. The word there that he was killed by the sword means that he was executed. His life was ended because of his faith in Christ. And he is the first of the 12 apostles to be put to death for this very reason. He's not the first martyr, though, because we remember in Acts chapter 7 that Stephen was put to death for his faith, his testimony. So, James, the son of Zebedee. And then the other James is actually the leader of the Jerusalem church, and we'll see that later in this chapter when uh, Peter actually talks about him. But in verse 3 it says, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, meaning because Herod saw that James' death pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter take him captive, and it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison, and he delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So James is put to death, and Herod sees that, hey, look, everybody loves me because I'm putting to death these Christian leaders. So I want to be more popular, so what am I going to do? I'll do it through the same way. I'll find another Christian leader. I'll put him to death. Well, he did that. He captured him and he put him in jail because at that time, it was the time of Passover. He couldn't put to death anyone. He couldn't execute anyone during the time of Passover. 
If you'll remember, Jesus himself was put to death on the day before Passover. And that's why it was important that he died before that night so they could take him down off the cross because they couldn't execute anybody during the time of Passover. And it's actually funny because the prophecy said that his, not even one of his bones would be broken because if someone was put on the cross or put to death, executed and in the way of the cross, if they didn't die and the next day was going to be Passover, they would actually break their legs so that they couldn't hold themselves up anymore. Because part of crucifixion is not just the, the, the wounding of the body, but it's you're suffocating. Because when you hang on those nails and then you're drooping down, every time you take a breath in, you can't breathe out anymore. It's like someone sitting on your chest, you can't breathe out. And so the lack of oxygen in your body would cause you to suffocate to death as well as be in pain. And so for those that had the, the nail in their feet, they could actually, even though it would be agonizing, get another breath by pushing up on that nail and causing them to be able to bring in a little more air, but they would live longer. So many times, if, if they wouldn't die right away, and that issue was they couldn't be up on the cross anymore, the, the soldiers would then take something and break their legs so that they would droop down and then die quicker. It was kind of mercy if you think about it. I mean, it, so anyway, basically, during the time of Passover, they couldn't put anybody to death, which Herod, I can imagine, was being pretty bummed about because all he wanted to do was get more popularity. So, but he had to wait. Why did he have to wait? He was an ungodly man. Why would it matter? Well, because even though he wasn't religious, he was half Jewish. And so to show himself religious, he would follow some of the rules of men to try and make them think, hey, I'm a Christian. You know, kind of like when we have these elections come up and, and some of the, you know, in the past we've had presidential elections and to show that they're, you know, kind of Christian, some of them will go to a, a church a couple times and then of course the media will see that they were at church and go hey they're a christian leader and all of a sudden many people will vote for them just because they showed a hint of a religion and so in the same way herod was double-minded even though he said he was a, a jew he really was just doing it for political reasons and he really wasn't one inwardly and so we see that he did follow the rules he he used this uh roman kind of culture thing. They had made a compromise between the Roman government and the Jews to get along. They're like, okay, we won't execute anybody on your feast days. And so he puts him in jail. And instead of tying this man to one person, they tie Peter to what it says, uh, two guards. Because normally they would just chain him to one. And we see this with the Apostle Paul. When he's in prison, they chain him to a guard so he can't get free. And so if he does get free, he's chained to somebody. He's not really free. But instead, it says there in verse 12, excuse me, not 12. That's way too far ahead. It says that he, um, excuse me, verse 4, he says, He delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So he actually, four squads of soldiers would be four groups of four soldiers. Well, why would they put so many guards on just one guy? I mean, he's not like Bin Laden. He's not somebody that's known for doing terrorism. He's not even like the Apostle Paul was before he started walking with the Lord, who was dragging people from their homes and taking them to Jerusalem. He's not a, a most wanted man on the list. So why are they putting four groups of four men on this one guy? Well, if you'll remember with me, 
Peter has a uh, history of getting out of jail without getting out of jail the legal way. In Acts chapter 5, actually, uh, and they would remember this, Peter and the other apostles had been preaching the gospel in Jerusalem. And there in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5, we have the reason for them putting so many guards because it says there, the high priest rose up, verse 17 of chapter 5, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, they were filled with indignation. They were jealous. They laid their hands on the apostles. They put them in common prison. Common prison. Not high security Alcatraz, but the common prison. They were like, okay, put them in jail. Let's put them to death. Let's do something. But it says in verse 19, but at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, go back and stand in the temple Speak to the people all the words of this life. And then we heard that, when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest, those with him, came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. So my point is, is that Peter had this history of the Lord releasing him miraculously. So you can imagine that they're like, we're not letting him get away this time. We'll do all that's in our power to make, I don't care how many guards we got to pay to watch this guy, he is not getting loose. And so he puts four squads of four men on this guy, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. But we know, no matter what kind of might, no matter how many chariots, no matter how many tanks, if the Lord's people are involved and God's going to protect them, it, you can send a whole legion of an army to try and guard those who you're going to keep captive. But the truth is, is that when God wants to set somebody free, he's going to do it. And so we see this take place here. So verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. I want to point this out, because I think this is one of the major themes of this passage today, that one of God's own is taken captive, He's put in prison in an impossible situation. The church knows, and Peter knows as well, that those who are captured by Herod are going to be put to death for their faith, and that there's nothing they can do about it apart from the Lord. They know that there's no solution. And so they don't call their congressmen. They don't uh, start a riot in the middle of the town. I want you to notice what their first response is. Lord, we're desperate, and we need you to act. And so they intercede. It says there in verse 5, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping. I love this. Peter is in jail. He's tied to two guards. He's, each gate is guarded with more guards. His schedule says tomorrow you're going to be put to death. Makes me think of that commercial. Uh, the Tombstone commercial, you guys ever see it? It was on years ago. It says, you know, this guy's getting ready to be put to the firing squad. And they say, what do you want on your tombstone? And he says, pepperoni and cheese. You know, he's, he's not worried. He's like, I, I want a good last meal. You know, but Peter here has the hope of heaven. He knows that if the Lord sets him free, he's going to be free. And he's going to go back to doing what he was doing anyway. But if he gets put to death, what's going to happen? He's going to be in glory. He's going to be in heaven. I mean... Paul even wrote, he said, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You know, he even wrote in Romans, he said, the trials that we experience in this life, 
when compared to the weight of glory that we'll experience in the presence of God, it's not even to be considered in the same sense. It's not even worthy to be mentioned. Heaven is going to be so much better than the best of the best that we can have down here. And most of us won't experience what the world would call the best of the best. But even if we did, it wouldn't measure up in comparison to the hope of heaven. And so Peter has a piece about him that passes all under. I don't get it. I'm, I don't care what anybody says. If someone put me in jail today, chained me between two burly guards, guarantee they're sweaty, I'm not taking my shoes off, taking my garment off and sleeping on the floor. I'm going, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? But Peter had a peace about him. He had seen the Lord re- reveal his power. He had seen Jesus put into the tomb a rock, a stone rolled in front of it that no one could move. And then he showed up to see Jesus released from that tomb, risen from the dead. He knew that this was something that God was able to do. Maybe I'm reading more into it than I should, but that, those are the things that come to mind as I read this passage. But he's sleeping. He's bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Verse 7, Now behold, that word there means pay attention, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. An angel is standing next to him. A bright light is shining in the prison and Peter doesn't notice. He's a deep sleeper, it seems. And it says the angel struck him on the side, saying, wake up, Peter, what are you doing? And as he wakes him up, it says, then the angel said to him, gird yourself. In other words, pull yourself together, put your clothes on, tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out, he followed him, did not know what was done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. In other words, he he thought this was all a dream. I mean, you ever think about something so much during a day? Maybe you got something going on the next week and you're just, before you go to sleep, it's your last thought. Maybe you're even praying about it. Lord, what do I do? I have no clue. And it's so heavy on your mind that you're sleeping and you have a dream about it and it goes well or it goes really bad. You know, I remember having my driver's test the next day. And I remember having a dream like, man, I I could pass my driver's test, but I don't even know how to get to school once I get my driver's license. And I had a dream that I got lost in Farmington. You know, big metropolis of Farmington. I thought I was going to get lost. But we're like that. When things are on our mind, we have these weird dreams that mix all the stuff that's heavy on our mind. And Peter was no doubt thinking about this. But he thought this was a dream, what was going on. But the angel, nonetheless... He went out and he followed him and did not know what was done by the angel, verse 9, was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them on its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So what did Peter have to do as part of this step of faith? Nothing. When the angel stood next to him and said, wake up, the chains immediately released. When he got up and he put his clothes, all he had to do was be obedient. He put his clothes on, he put his shoes on, he followed the angel thinking it was a dream. Maybe this was God's grace. Maybe he would have been too loud and saying, what's going on? If he was fully awake, but he was half asleep. He didn't do anything except do what he was told. And as he did what he was told, guess what happened? 
He was set free. Salvation is like that. It's not a work that we work. It's something that God does despite us even. And when we're just obedient to do what we're told to do, and notice every one of the gates, every one of the barriers that were against Peter to keep him from being set free, God opened them. He revealed his faithfulness. He freed them from the gates covered by guards. The, the, number one, he was chained to two people. I mean, this must have happened. He must have put on his clothes or the, the, the Lord must have made them like deaf. Because if they were light sleepers at all, I'm surprised they were even sleeping. But then they woke up and he went. And then the next thing, the gate is guarded by more guards. And then the, the gate to, that enters into the city, it was guarded by more guards. And the Lord opened them all. He, he took every barrier that kept Peter from being saved from his situation and he knocked it over. And then as Peter walks out, he's standing there in the middle of the street, realizes that whatever's going on is real. He's coming to himself. The angel departs. He's kind of left there hanging like, what, what just happened? He's in the middle of the alley going, what, what now? So then it says there in verse um, 11 that when Peter had come to himself, he said, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Now I wonder if this is where he was going when he got arrested. Because Peter somehow knew that they, that's where they were gathered. Now, this is the house of John Mark, who penned the book of Mark. And many believe that this is the same place where they had gathered after Jesus had been crucified, or before he was crucified for the Last Supper in the upper room. Many also believe that this is the same place where they gathered when the 120 gathered to pray, when Jesus told them, I want you to go into the city, and I want you to wait together and pray that and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. This is the same home. So this was a kind of a headquarters for them. So then he goes back to this place, and he finds the church praying for him. What I want to point out to you is where it says that constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. It doesn't just mean that they were praying continually, although that would have the idea of constant prayer, but it's actually the word earnest, which when I first read in the commentary that it said earnest and constant were kind of the same thing, I'm like, okay, so earnestly they prayed. They prayed a long time. But the word there actually in the Greek is the word ektenos, which means absolutely nothing to me because I'm not a Greek scholar. But that word ektenos, according to John MacArthur, the Bible teacher, is related to the word ektenes. And I don't know if I'm saying it right. But it's a medical term that describes the stretching of a muscle until it's completely at its limits. To stretch out and to reach for something to the point where you can't reach any farther. So their prayer is not only constant and continual, but it's also agonizing. They want it so bad they can taste it. They want Peter to be set free because they saw James put to death and they love Peter as well. And so Maybe they were thinking, we should have prayed more for our leaders in the first place. Let's pray for Peter like we can't stand it anymore. And so they reach out to the Lord. Lord, please act in this situation. We can do nothing by ourselves. And as they reach out, that word that he uses to describe that agonizing prayer is the same word that Luke uses to describe in Luke twenty-two forty-four, where Jesus is in the garden praying 
that the cup of suffering that he's about to experience, Lord, if there's any other thing that will save mankind, can you please reveal it to me because this is going to be hard. But not your will be done, but my will be done. Lord, give me the strength that this is what I'm called to. But if not, Lord, release me. Let this cup of suffering pass from me. And as we see that word being used by him to describe Jesus, Jesus was praying so hard, he was so stressed by the situation, it affected him so physically that he was actually sweating great drops of blood. So what I want to point out is that much of our prayer is powerless because it lacks earnestness. Too often we almost pray with the attitude of wanting something. We want God to want we want God to care about something that we ourselves really don't care about that much. Earnest prayer has power not because itself it in itself persuades a reluctant God. Instead, it demonstrates that our heart cares passionately about the things that God cares about. And uh, Jesus actually taught his disciples this this way in John chapter 15 verse 7. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. We see this. The church earnestly desired the things that God desired. And as a result, a captive man was set free. How awesome would it be if we as a church corporately would pray for people to be saved? Not just from physical situations, although that many times leads to someone seeing the power of God and wanting to trust Him for their spiritual salvation. But how often do we pray for things or people? I'm guilty of this, so I'm not preaching to you guys as much as I'm preaching to myself. When I pray, oftentimes it's like, Lord, be with so-and-so. And I'm like, all right. And then I fall asleep instantly because I really, I wasn't really that into it. I was just like, I know this is something I need to pray uh, according to God's will. Anyway, so one chain was customary, but he was tied by many, and he, God set him free anyway. So verse um, 12, so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she was so excited, she didn't open the gate, she didn't let him in, but she ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now you would think they're sitting in a prayer meeting praying for this very thing to happen. It happens, and what do they say? You are beside yourself, Rhoda. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. <laughs> You're crazy. He's not here. That's probably just his angel. Apparently there was a belief that everyone had a guardian angel and that the angel was the one standing. They were more likely to believe that the angel was standing there than Peter himself had been freed from prison. But P Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren, and he departed and he went to another place. So Peter gets there. They don't believe that it's him. And his first thing that he wants to tell them is, hey, God answered your prayer, and here's how he answered it. If you ever ask anybody to pray for you on a certain situation, and God answers, there's nothing more that you can do to say thank you than just to tell them, here's how God acted. Here's how God answered. Because number one, they'll be encouraged to keep praying more, and number two, they'll be blessed 
to see God's faithfulness in someone else's life and learn to trust Him a little bit more in that situation for themselves. So, the other thing he does is he says, now that I've told you this testimony, I'm getting ready to go. I got to get out of town because this place isn't safe for me anymore. Keep doing what you're doing, but make sure somebody goes and tells James in Jerusalem that God is still at work. Because remember, James is the leader of the Jerusalem church. And guess what's happening there? Persecution, death, and they're in the middle of a famine. So go tell them God's still on the throne. He's still faithful. So, then he comes to the, 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 the guards. And what does Herod do to the guards? Well, obviously there's no small commotion. It says that, well, Peter says, motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. He said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Meanwhile, as soon as it was day, verse 18, there was no small stir among the soldiers. That's how Luke says it. He doesn't say there was a great stir. He says there was no small stir, meaning there was a big stir. I don't know. That's just how he writes things. But then he says, uh, and then it says, there was no small stir among the soldiers about this prisoner, Peter, getting free. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards, he questioned them, he commanded that they should be put to death. That's what the kings of this world do when people fail them. It was common in those days if a, a guard had not done his job and kept a prisoner in the prison like he was supposed to, he would get the punishment that the prisoner deserved. They would put him to death. That was a little incentive for him to do a good job. So that's what the kings of this world do when we fail them. They put us to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he stayed there. So Herod, imagine you're the king and you've been boasting, hey, guess what I'm going to do for you guys? You know, it's not like high school where the leader says, I'm going to, you know, if you vote for me for class president, I will get you new soda machines. You know, like, it's not that kind of thing. It's, hey, if you vote for me, I'm going to put these, I'm going to get rid of these Christian leaders, you know, and then you guys can, you know, I'll be popular, right? Well, he didn't do that. The prisoner got free. So imagine he's a little bit uh, bummed and a little bit embarrassed that he wasn't able to fulfill his promise to the people. So he leaves town and he goes to another place. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, that's where he went, and they came to him with one accord and having made Blastus the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So he went down there and of course he wants to get favor from them. And they're saying, okay, can we have favor with you? And we love you, like, you know, and they're, they're all saying how great he is because if they don't say how great he is, maybe he'll cut off the fact that they're supplying food to him. So this is just something that was going on politically at the time. So on a set day, Herod arrayed himself in royal apparel. He sat on his throne, and because he knew that they were going to praise him for how great he was, he put himself in a place and he said, okay, tell me how great I am so I can give you what you want. He liked this. He loved the praises of men. And the... He, and then he sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. He spoke to them. And as he did this, the people kept shouting the voice of God and not of man. And then as a result of this, as they were praising him, they immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and he died. But the word of God grew and it multiplied. So this ungodly king is persecuting these people. 
even using his power to oppress them to the point where they'll praise him so they can get what they need out of him. They needed food. They needed sustenance. And as he did this, the Lord had the final word. And that's what happens to all leaders that are given power by God. Even though it seems like they continue to get to prosper, the ungodly, God has the final say. And he manifests this in the life of Herod here. Actually, there's a Jewish scholar, and I'll just take a second to read it. There was a Jewish scholar, a a historian by the name of Josephus, commissioned by the Roman government to keep track of what was going on in the nation of Israel. And he was there this day. He wasn't a believer in Jesus. He wasn't biased with an opinion. He actually just gives testimony of what he saw. He wrote down, he said, On that day, Herod put on a garment made holy of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. And came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner. And he was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, because as they praised him, A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, he died. So it wasn't that he died instantly. It was that God struck him with something that would humble him. And as that thing humbled him, physically, it showed what was going wrong with him spiritually. Because the corruption that was in him inside manifested itself on the outside. That corruption that God allowed, that physical ailment, showed that God was not on his side. That God would judge him for the very act of letting the people of God praise him. So the will of God is always wise and good. But that does not mean that it's always predictable. God allows James to be put to death. He allows Peter to be brought out of the prison. He allows an ungodly ruler, but then judges him after people praise him. So what I want to ask you this morning is, who is your king? We've seen many examples of kings. A king is a ruler, a chief authority over a country or over a people. His leadership usually is for the length of his life. But he has the right to rule based on the family that he comes from. Herod had the right to rule because he was from the lineage that were the kings of that day. Herod's king, do you realize that Herod had a king? Herod's king was the opinion of the people. Man's opinion is a fickle ruler. It changes depending on who the people are. It changes and it really has no basis for its authority. But Herod was ruled by the king of man's opinion. The guards and the soldiers' king was Herod. Great when things are great. Bad and treacherous when things are not going so great. His authority would only last the length of his life and there was no long-term rewards for serving him. They got paid, but eternally they got killed. Yet failing him will earn you death. So when we serve the kings of either man's opinion or a king of this world, they're going to let us down. The guards, or excuse me, the people of Tyre and Sidon, their king was also Herod. He used what they needed as an opportunity to gain something from them, their praises. His authority was yet still ruled by man's opinion. His rule would only be temporary. A man who received the praises of men 
and yet he received the final judgment of God. And then there's the king of James, Peter, the angels, and the church's king. Herod gave death, but Jesus delivered from the grave and gives everlasting life. We see this in the life of James. Though his life was put to death, eternally he would have life with the Son of God. Herod captures you and he promises that he'll put you to death. Jesus delivers us from captivity and promises eternal rewards. Peter was delivered from his enemies and the glory of God will shine through his life. Herod commands men. Jesus commands a legion of angels and he uses just one to save Peter. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 says, angels are ministering spirits that are sent forth to minister to those who will inherit eternal salvation. God did that in this passage. He used an angel to minister to Peter, Peter's need as a person who was on his way through this life and an heir of salvation. Herod seeks the praises of men to build himself up, and Jesus hears and answers the praise of his children in order to care for their needs as they serve him. Jesus is a king that provides for our needs when we serve him. He doesn't expect things from us. And not only for their needs, but in this case, on behalf of someone else who was in a desperate need, the church was praying for him. Herod destroys whoever he has, excuse me, Herod destroys whoever he has to in order to receive praise from men. And Jesus destroys the enemies of the church. And in doing so, he blesses his people. And that's how he receives, it, receives the praises of men. He serves them. And then Acts chapter 12, verse 24 says this, despite all the things that were going on, despite all the trials and the pains and the suffering that were going on, the death even, because of the things that were going on, the word of God grew and it multiplied. Pains, struggles, trials. If we can learn to praise God while the bad things are going on, we will see the fulfillment of his promises throughout those things. And so God shows himself to be the final judge. I want to read a couple verses from Psalm 37 and then we'll be done. David in similar situations wrote this in Psalm chapter 37. Verse 30, it says, The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom and his tongue, his tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart and none of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand nor condemn him when he is judged. Verse 39, But the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in the time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. That's all he's asking. We don't have to do anything except trust him. And the ways that we can show that we trust him is by putting our faith in what he has written down for us to know that he is faithful that he is good that he is just so father in the midst of our struggles and temptations and trials and even when it seems like nothing else can happen to fix them lord may we have the perfect peace that you promise to those who trust you lord may we be those who don't draw near to you with only our lips like herod did but may we be the faithful ones that even when it makes no earthly sense that we put our trust, our faith in you. And may when we see people that are going through earthly and uh, real practical struggles and trials, may we be those who would 
reach out for your will to be done, for you to save them, for you to be in the midst of their struggle and, and, and deal and help them, Lord, in time of need. But may we also reach out and agonize in prayer over those who do not know you, who are suffering things that could easily, easily be gone through, though be a struggle. May, may we be those who would intercede on their behalf when they're going through uh, trials that could be a lot easier had, had they experienced the hope of heaven. So Lord, uh, we pray for salvation to take place in those that we know personally that, that need you more than they need a practical help. Father, we want to see your name become glorious in this land. And so I just pray that you would make us those who would intercede on behalf of those who need you the most. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we just offer this last song of praise to you for setting us free, though we were captive. For knocking down all the barriers, though we were at war against you and we were at enmity against you. Father, thank you for your faithfulness despite our lack of faith. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.